14. Let me remind you of a couple points I've collected over the years. Just when it comes to things like this, I like what Alistair Begg says. That the plain things be the main things. Therefore, if it's plain in scripture, that's the main thing. If it's not plain, it probably isn't a main thing. So let the plain things be the main thing. John Calvin warned of excessive curiosity that takes away from the main things. Be careful of going down the rabbit trails. John Piper talks about marginal elements that take you away from the deep. Just be careful that we don't get caught up in that. And why do I say that? Because we're talking about Enoch tonight. There's not a lot of verses in the Bible about Enoch. And it's really easy to get caught up on who Enoch was and everything that happened. In fact, the Jews which had a very oral tradition of passing along stories, etc. They have a lot of stories about Enoch, that he was quite the prophet, that he wrote down these prophecies. Noah took him with him on the ark, and they've been saved throughout years. And so what happens is you run into this prophecy by Enoch in verses 14 and 15. You're flipping through the Bible saying, I don't see this. And the next thing you know, you're wondering, okay, so is this, is this one of those extra biblical things that really aren't true? And you're down this rabbit trail now of, well, how did Paul know the two names of the magicians that he mentions in Timothy? Where did that quote of Jesus come from that's not mentioned in the gospel? Where do these details come from? And what happens is we go down this rabbit trail. And so we have to remember right here, right now, this is what we know. The Bible says Enoch prophesied this, and that's what we believe. No, if you've ever studied this out before, there's something called the Book of Enoch, and I do not believe that's a biblical book. If it was a biblical book, we'd have 67 books in the Bible, one of them being the Book of Enoch. We do not have that. That's an extra-biblical writing. Now, please remember, there may be truth in some of those things, but just because there's some truth in it doesn't make the whole thing true. You have to remember that. So therefore, just because the book of Enoch may have this quote, it does not mean that Jude said, hey, the book of Enoch, I'm taking it. It means it was an element of truth there that has been confirmed by the Holy Spirit, and that's what we see going on. So let's talk about Enoch first. Will you go with me, please, to Genesis chapter 5? This is why we're six weeks into the book of Jude. Because on other times, we would have just have just said Enoch, and I would have shared a little bit about Enoch and moved on. I want us to treat this like a nice meal, and we're going to slow down, and we're going to go figure out Enoch here and talk about some of the details. Enoch, Genesis 5. I love Genesis 5. Genesis 5 is a testing chapter. You've heard me make this point many times before. Somebody will come up and say, hey, I really want to read through the Bible. I started in Genesis. And I always groan a little bit. I say, what, what are you going to do when you get to like a chapter like five? Now, most people can work through chapter five because chapters one through four are pretty good. And you get the flood in six, seven, and eight. And the next thing you know, it changes a little bit. Genesis five is a book of genealogy. But look at the wording of it. Look at verse one. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And the day that God created man, he made man in the likeness of God. That, that's so important. Man was made in the likeness of God. But then read on. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. That's just a little detail to note. Adam was made into the image and likeness of God. From that point forward, every other man was made in the image and likeness of their dad. Things change a little bit. And that's part of what you see in Genesis 5. What you also see in Genesis 5 is this great phrase, verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And guess what's repeated again? And he died, and he died, and he died. 
It's a whole list of thousands of years. Genesis 5.1 to Noah in verse 32 is thousands of years of death. Talk about one bite, a piece of fruit which caused on the world. Romans 8, the whole world is under creation. Excuse me, the whole world is under the curse because of what happened. But in the midst of all of this, you have Enoch, verse 18. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. I like to read through the Bible wondering what would have been like the first time I read through the Bible. We have a small group that's meeting on Mondays. We're going through the book of Acts. And you know what happens in the book of Acts. You're introduced to this man by the name of Stephen. Stephen appears in Acts chapter 6. He becomes a central character, full of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 7, he does this amazing message in front of the Sanhedrin. And by the time of end of Acts chapter 7, he's dead. And then all of a sudden, Saul's introduced. And I just keep thinking, if you were reading through the Bible and you knew nothing about the Bible, you'd get to uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and you'd say, ah, this is the guy. This is going to be the guy, the main character, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And you're reading through Acts 7, you're listening to this message like, this is the guy. Then all of a sudden, Acts 7 ends with, he's dead. He came on the scene for a chapter and a half and he's dead. But then you're introduced to Saul. And you're like, oh, now this is going to be the bad guy for the rest of the book of Acts. Then you get to Acts 9, it's like, Saul got saved? It's just fascinating. We're so used to it. If you were reading through Genesis for the first time ever in your life, and you're like, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Everybody's dying. Then all of a sudden you get to verse 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for he died. Wait, no. For God took him. And that's all it says. It's just like the Bible just drops this at you and doesn't give any clarification in any way whatsoever. He, Enoch just walked with God, and God took him. And you'd be scratching your head. God took him? Like God took him in death? Like God took him home? God took him out to eat? What does this mean? God took him. You get a little bit more detail in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews eleven five says, By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So now we have another layer to Enoch. We know that he, one, did not see death. So therefore he was taken supernaturally. Two, we know that he pleased God. But I wouldn't get that from Genesis 5. And I think that's kind of why Enoch was such a strange character to the Jews. We have Hebrews 11 to add the extra elements to Enoch. That he was taken and did not die and that he pleased God. But for the Jews, it's kind of interesting. Now if you do quick math, his dad Jared lived 962 years. Enoch had a son named Methuselah that lived 969 years. Enoch only lived 365. I say only 365. That'd be another thing that would catch your attention. Dad's 962, son's 969. So there's obviously good genetics there. He went 365. Now, some people like to take 365 and make something out of it, a 365 days in the year. Please remember, our calendar has 365 days a year. That's not the way the calendar was back there for the Jews and our other people. So I wouldn't make that type of connection there in any way whatsoever. But we have to talk about this. Now, let's go to another layer now on Enoch. This is what we get to do on Wednesday night. Remember what it said in Jude. Enoch was the seventh from Adam. 
Now, why does it say seventh from Adam? Because there's other Enoch's. Genesis 4, verse 16. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, to Enoch was born Irod, and Irod begot, etc. And it goes on from there. So there's other Enoch's in the Bible. It's kind of interesting that Cain goes out and builds kingdoms for himself, names kingdoms after himself, while Seth's line is trying to proclaim God. A little bit of an interesting thing there. But why does it say the seventh from Adam? It shows that it's a different Enoch, but please also note, if he's the seventh from Adam, who's the seventh from Adam in Cain's line? Jump ahead a little bit real quick. You're introduced in verse 8 to a man by the name of Lamech, who is the seventh from Cain. Look what Lamech does. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah. Now, isn't that an interesting detail to put in? Enoch, the seventh from Adam, pleased God so much, he's taken home to heaven early. Which is not a curse, it's a blessing. Please always remember, being taken home to heaven is a blessing. I, I use this example a lot. We always look at death as some type of, oh, what they do wrong. I, imagine you and your buddy starting your first day of work, Okay, you are just fresh out of high school. You are 18 and you're starting your first day at work and you're looking ahead and you're like, okay, this is the first day for the next 50 years type thing. And the boss comes up to you and says, hey, congrats, you know what? I'd probably be here for the next 50 years. You're like, the next 50 years of my life. He looks at your buddy and says, hey, guess what? You can go home. I'm fired? Nope. We're giving you full benefits, full retirement, full pay, full health insurance, full everything. You never have to work another day in your life. Now, would you look at your buddy and say, I feel so bad for you? No, you'd be completely, utterly jealous. Enoch went home. Yeah, but he only had 365 years. Everybody else got 960. He went home. And so therefore, we have to remember that. Now, the problem with that is we have this tendency, especially when someone dies young, we all, all the things they missed. We may need to let go of that thought. Because think of everything they gained. I'm 43, and there's a lot of things in my 43 years that I will no longer miss if the Lord takes me home. And if I sit there and say, oh, but I'm going to miss my kids, whatever, you know what? Time frame in heaven is a lot different. Pretty sure I'm not going to be up there in heaven twiddling my thumbs going, how soon until she gets up here? But I think it's interesting. The seventh from Adam was so pleasing to God that God took him home, but the seventh from Cain decided to take God's fundamental plan for marriage and totally mess it up with two wives. Please remember, marriage predates the fall of man. That's, so, that's why marriage is so vitally important. That's why Ephesians 5 says marriage is a picture of husbands loving their wives like Christ. It's such a beautiful picture. And what does Lamech do in verse 19? The seventh from Cain, he completely messes up that beautiful picture. So how does God describe Enoch in verse 24? Once again, he walked with God for God took him. Different translations, walked faithfully, close fellowship, walked habitually. It carries this idea of closeness. Closeness that, once again, Hebrews takes along with them, that he pleased God. I think of the word abide in John 15. Abiding with God, the closeness that you can get. So that's our background into Enoch. That, that's all we know about him. Now, going back to Jude, we can add the element that he was a prophet. We see that in Jude 14. So that's what we know about Enoch. Let's get into his prophecy now real quick. But hey, before we do that, any quick questions, comments here about Enoch? Making sure we understand him before we go on. Good? Okay. So, he prophesies this. What does he prophesy? What a prophecy, verse 14. 
Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict those, all who are, please keep track of the word ungodly, convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against home, and for keeping track, that's for ungodlies. I think God is trying to make a point there. So the first thing you see with this focus of this prophecy is judgment. Please remember the book of Jude is about apostasy, which means falling away. And so these apostates are going to be judged. Please note, these are not people that are just saying, oh, I've never heard of the gospel. I don't, I've never heard of God. These are people that are saying, I had a privilege knowing of God. Look at all the examples that we have. We have Israel back in verse 5 that was privileged of knowing God. We have the angels that had the privilege of knowing God. We had Cain, Balaam, and Korah that we talked about last week that two of those actually spoke to God. And one of them served in the temple. These are people with privilege that did not follow up that privilege with the responsibility of how they should have been. So therefore they were judged. Ungodly people. So hence verse 4, ungodly repeated four times as God's way of trying to get the point across. And he's coming back to do what? Verse 15. Judge them. This is something that we just have a tendency to kind of just forget. I heard a great teaching on the coming of Christ. And it really convicted me. And, and, it, was, and it was an honest teaching saying, listen, a lot of us dream. And, and it's like, oh, if Jesus could just return. I remember when I first got saved, people were talking about Jesus returning. And like, oh, don't you want Jesus just to return? That's what everybody wanted. So I said, sure, I want Jesus to return. At the moment, I didn't really care if Jesus returned. I was young. I had health. I had vigor. I had everything. If he comes back, great. If not, I got a lot of fun ahead of me. The older I get and the more I see in this world, the more I'm like, oh, Jesus, please return. And I'll talk to my boys about that. Oh, don't you want Jesus to return? And we have very honest devotions at home. And a lot of the boys are like, hmm, no. Yeah, those are the pastor's kids. You want Jesus to return? Mm-hmm. Because why? Because they're young. They, they haven't dealt with a lot of life that we have dealt with. And so therefore, it doesn't really drive them. But to remember, when Jesus is returning, the point back to what I was saying about the teaching, they said how much of Jesus returning from our perspective is a selfish desire. Oh, Lord, take me home. Oh, Lord, I no longer want to deal with this. Do we realize that Jesus is returning because why? Verse 15, to execute judgment. His return, when you go read Revelation 19 and you have blood splattering up to the horse's bridle, this is a vicious return. And before you believe that this is God that's just angry with a chip on his shoulder, please note once again verse 15. These are ungodly people doing ungodly deeds in an ungodly way on ungodly sinners. This is a righteous judgment. And that's what Enoch is prophesying. And who's coming with him, verse 14? With ten thousands of his saints. Now, I would not be dogmatic about this, because it uses the word saint, which means separated one. That's what it means in the Greek there. And the Bible refers to us a lot as saints. But knowing the context of his return and knowing what other scripture says, I think you can make a pretty good case that the ten thousands of his saints are probably angels. And I, let me just back that up real quick. And I, like I said, I would not be dogmatic about this. Let me just share a couple verses with you. Matthew 16, verse 27. Matthew 6, 27, 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And he will reward each according to his work. Some translations actually say holy ones instead of saints. 
Also, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So you see it in Matthew, you see it in Thessalonians, this idea of Jesus returning with the angels. That seems to be the context there. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Ten thousands is a very interesting word. Um, it has this kin- tendency to basically talk. There's going to be a lot. I, I can't even fathom what that event will be like at the second coming of Christ. Think back, and I'm not trying to start an argument with anybody here, so just don't, don't get worked up about this. But in the Bible, when people are presented with an angelic being in his angelic being garb, or God, they can't handle themselves. Isaiah, when he had the vision in heaven in Isaiah 6, he basically said, woe to me, I'm dead. John, when presented with an angel in Revelation, hit his knees twice. I mean, these are example after example. And we see so often nowadays people talking about these angelic encounters or something like that, and they just treat it like some casual, I ran into you at McDonald's type thing. To see the skies open. And it says in Matthew, I believe, that the lightning is thundering and just everything. And God himself appears with ten thousands of his angels. And you're holding your little rifle at the battle of Armageddon. What is that going to do to you? I mean, there is no word to describe the fear, the awe at that moment with your mark of the beast on you. And all of a sudden it comes clear, what did I do? It's just an unbelievable thing. So I want you to understand verse 14. That sky opening, Jesus returning, ten thousands of angels with him, and mankind standing with their great weapons. It's an unbelievable scene. And like I said, the blood goes up to the horse's bridle. It's just absolutely unbearable to think about. I can't remember who made this quote, so I wish I could give them credit. Um, but it quotes Luke 17. It says, As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That's Luke 17, the lightning flashing. And this is what they said about the lightning flashing. O Lord, if these are but the sparks from the sharpening of your sword, what will the day of your appearing be like? So if lightning is just the sparks from the sharpening of your sword, have you ever been in one of those nights where it's just black and it's lightning? What will your appearing be like? Now, to go full circle with this, how are we then as believers supposed to handle its appearing? I love this verse out of Hebrews chapter 9. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. We're supposed to eagerly wait for him. Look for his return. Do you not believe that this world as believe, and I'm only speaking for believers here, how much better this world would be if we would look for the return of Jesus Christ? Now listen, I'm not, I'm not naive to this. There, there's a lot of frustrations in this world right now of mandates and masks and social distancing. I, I get that. But what would happen if we would take all that energy and devote it to, yeah, but Jesus is returning? Or how about, you know what, I don't think my neighbor's saved. Can you imagine if we would take that same passion and frustration towards everything that's happening in this world, but devote that to, Lord, you're returning, and I eagerly, I eagerly await your return. And Lord, I am so frustrated with the world that it drives me to go proclaim the gospel more. Can you imagine if that would happen? 
that would happen. But instead, we just get our flesh riled up sometimes and we need to let that go. And we've got to be careful about that. So that is Enoch's prophecy about the return of Jesus to judge these apostates that we've been building up to this point. All right, are we good on that? Anybody got anything? Richard. That is a no prisoner's policy. That's a good way to look at it, yeah. Um, the Bible makes it clear in the book of Revelation that if you take the mark, you can't be saved. That is the ultimate spit in the face of Christ, is that when you take the mark, you are, you are willfully. My, in my opinion is this. I, every now and then I run into somebody who's like concerned that the mark of the beast is going to be like snuck in somewhere. Like, do you realize if you get that, that could be the mark of the beast? No, it's not the mark of the beast. Revelation, I believe, makes it abundantly clear. When you take the mark of the beast, you are making a conscious decision. To say, I am choosing this side of Satan. I am choosing this side of false prophet Antichrist. I am choosing this against God. And so therefore it is a no turn back. It is a no prisoners taken thing. Yeah, Because going into, I believe the Bible teaches, going into the millennial reign, the only people that go into the millennial reign are those that are saved. I believe Matthew 25, which is the judging of the nations, where you separate the sheep from the goat, I believe that happens after Armageddon. And so therefore the only people going into the millennial reign are those that are saved. So therefore the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, actually starts with only believers. That's my, that's, I believe I can back that up biblically. Anybody else got anything here before we go on? Okay. So let's get to our, some of our final descriptions here. On these apostates, please remember apostasy means the falling away, falling away from the truth. These are people that have an understanding of it, and they're choosing to reject it in lifestyle and in teaching. It is a huge deal to mess with the Word of God. It's a huge deal to mess with the Word of God. And that's what you see these people doing. And I, and I don't want you to think of people, but I'm not going to lie to you. When I was doing verses 16, 17, and 18, and 19, my mind could not help going to... Yeah, I know people like that. And they fit this description. Because we've talked so often here about these apostates. And let's just remind ourselves what Judas already told us. Verse 8, these apostates defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. They do what they want in the flesh. They're always battling authority. Verse 10, they speak evil whatever they do not know. Whatever they know naturally like brute beast and these things they corrupt themselves. And then we have the next description here in 16. Just, Just think about this. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. What's the difference between grumbling and complaining? Some of your translations say murmurers or grumblers. Generally in the Bible, grumbling and murmuring is under your breath. It's not openly. It's just something you think about. It's kind of like, hey, can you go do this for me? Yeah, I'll do that for you. What'd you say? Nothing. Anyway, that's grumbling. That's murmuring. It looks like an outside obedience. It looks like you're really being a team player, but there's a lot of words being spoken as you're walking away because you know you don't want them to actually hear it. One of the things you see with apostates is they're always grumbling about something. And the next one is complaining, fault-finding. This is a little more open. Do you know that person? They always have a problem with everything. I mean, everything. They get the worst service at restaurants. They get the worst customer service at a store. They get the worst seat on the airplane. They get the worst car, the worst boss, the worst co-workers, the worst church, even though they keep going to it, the worst pastor, the worst everything. And they are just complaining, fault finders with everything. There is no joy. There is no peace. i got to be honest with you. I've been out here for over 20 years now. That really, really 
used to get to me. And I'm going to be honest, there was a part of my flesh that when I would run into one of those complaining fault finders, I'd be like, yeah. But we're the church that it's going to finally click for them. There was... Right, Spirit saying no. Discipline to say, I have learned over the years, you can't just... Certain people, are just it's not going to work out. It's just not going to work out. Um, moving on quickly, lusts, desires. It's all about them. It's all about them. Mouth, great, swelling words. Other translations, brags, love, loud mouth boastings. I always use this joke. You've heard it many times before, so please laugh out of sympathy. You know how that they're doing well? You know they're doing so great spiritually? And the reason you knew they're doing so great spiritually because if you just ask them, they tell you how great they're doing spiritually. They have no problem telling you how great they are, how deep they are. And how the Lord maybe only reveals things to them. And just the depth of their walk and prayer life and ministry. And it's just, and, and, and I walk away thinking, I'm nothing because they're just so amazing. And like, boy, don't you have struggles and problems? No, because they are just great, swelling words of boasting and just bragging. What else do we have about them? 17. Oh, excuse me. Great swelling words. And we also have the flattering. Flattering people to gain advantage. Do you ever run into that coworker, that person, that they can use words? They can use words to get what they want. It's a powerful thing, a compliment. And some people really know how to use that. Uh, 17. Please remember, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. I want to build on this. Can you go with the Matthew 7, please? Matthew 7. Jesus talked about these false teachers. Paul talked about these false teachers. Peter talked about these false teachers. We're only going to read the scriptures of what Jesus said. I'll make reference here to what Paul and Peter said. Matthew 7. Let's talk with the word of Jesus first. Mockers in the last days. Please note, Jesus warned us. Paul warned us. Peter warned us. And remember Jude said earlier back in verse 4. They will creep into a church unmarked. Creep in. Unmarked. Verse 15 of Matthew 7, beware, this is words of Christ, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothes, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them. Jesus is saying you will have false prophets and they'll look like a sheep. They'll look good. Paul built on this himself when he talked to the church at Ephesus, excuse me, in Acts chapter 20. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul says, listen, they're going to come in from the outside and they're going to come in from the inside. I'm warning you. Peter warned us about this too in 2 Peter 2. He says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets, excuse me, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in deceptive heresies. Peter says it's going to happen. Come in from the outside, come in from the inside. And this is what the end times is going to be like now. It is, it is such a ridiculous thing now. Christianity is just completely, utterly mocked. Just completely. There's no other religion that is mocked to the extent of Christianity. 
just, it's just ridiculous what goes on there. And remember, they said, this is what is going to happen. This is what it is. And, you know, for those that are kids, still raising kids, I just keep thinking about that. But my children are going to be thought of as Christians. The idea that we are truly in the minority now on nearly every major social issue. And this is the way the world is going. So mockers in last time, walking according to their own godly lust. 19, sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. Sensual persons. These mockers will attack anyone, attack anything. There's no good in anyone. They scoff at everything. They're sensual, which means they're worldly. It doesn't carry any type of sexual meaning there in 19, but worldly people. The world has them. They're had by their possessions. They're had by their time. The world has them. And they're had by the world's problems. I'm going to throw that one out there. This is what I keep seeing more and more and more. Christians so caught up in the problems of the world that we forget that our citizenship is in heaven. And we forget that our, our position is supposed to be spreading the gospel. But we're so worked up over what's going on in this world. We've got to remember not to get involved in that. And lastly, what do they do in 19? They cause division. They just, they really get their kicks out of causing a division. I know people like that. I've seen people like that. Jude describes them perfectly. What are we supposed to do with these people? 20. But you, beloved, finally, tell me I'm allowed to make a hit list of them. Let me know that I'm allowed to make websites talking about them and make YouTube videos and put them down and attack them and mock them. Now look what Jude says in 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. He says four things there for a note taker. First one he thinks says to use to build. Second thing he says is to pray. Third one is to keep. Fourth one is to look. First thing, build. Build yourself up on your most holy faith. Do not build yourself up on your own self-esteem. I, that, that has become this world thing. But I really need to go find myself. You know, I really just need to focus on me. I really just need some me time. No, you don't. You need to build yourself up on the most holy faith. That's what's going to keep you strong in this midst of world falling apart. It's not... Your faith, it is the most holy faith. It's not just a faith. How often do we do that? Well, I'm just glad they found something. No, I want them to find the most holy faith. That is the Lord. That is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's why I said in 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. There is a good fight out there, and it's for the faith of what Jesus Christ is. So build yourself up in the most holy faith. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but, but if somebody's watching or if you're listening here and you have a tendency to kind of get into this or woe is me, I really just want to encourage you, build yourself up on your most holy faith. Keep your eyes so focused on Jesus. There's a great book that, that I'm reading and it's the concept is very simple. Keep your eyes on Christ. I, I pray regularly that my identity would be in Jesus. My identity cannot be as a husband, it cannot be as a father, and it cannot be as a pastor. It has to be in Christ. I have to have my faith built on who He is. Next one, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. It could go in a couple different ways here. You could go the Romans 8.26 way, over the Spirit you can pray in moans and groans that, that words cannot express. You could talk about Corinthians 14, about praying in the Spirit there, and tongues, etc., It carries this idea of praying in the Spirit, of saying, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you, Lord. 
I'm praying in the Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit leading me to pray? People get prayer so backwards. They really think prayer is this giving God a to-do list. I just want to share with you a couple quotes real quick. First one is by a man by the name of Jack Kelly that I read. He says this, Some people pray like a manager firing off a to-do list to a subordinate. Others act like they're phoning in an order for the things they want. Very few people ever stop to listen to what the Lord has to say. You've heard me teach on this before. I call it the butler genie Santa Claus prayers. You treat God like a butler. I'm just ordering him around. Lord, that's the job I want. That's the car I want. That's the woman I want. Please get it for me. You treat him like a genie. Oh, Lord, I wish I could get this. Lord, I really, really want this. Or you treat him like Santa Claus. Lord, I've been really good. I deserve this now. I've been really good. We're completely misunderstanding prayer. We're treating it like demands and lists and orders. I like this quote idea too. The prevailing idea of prayer seems to be that I come to God and ask Him for something that I want and that I expect Him to give me that which I have asked. But this is a most dishonoring and degrading conception. The popular belief reduces God to a servant, our servant, doing our bidding, performing our pleasure, granting our desires. No, prayer is a coming to God, telling Him my need, committing my way into the Lord, and leaving him to deal with it as it seems best. That's prayer. Be careful that you do not fall into the butler, genie, Santa Claus type prayers. Pray in the spirit. Next one, keep yourselves in the love of God. There is no works-based salvation there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is how I, I see it. And it's kind of a tough concept because it says keep yourselves. But yet it's not a workspace. Okay, imagine you're outside on one of those winter days, no wind. But the sun's out and it's bright. If you're in that sun, you can start taking off layers. But as soon as you get out of the sun, you're putting layers back on. The way I see myself of keeping myself in the Lord, John 15, 9 carries this idea of, of continuing with the Lord. I'll read the verse real quick. It says, as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love, continue in my love. I, I just see myself standing in the sun, S-U-N, which is representing the sun, S-O-N, And as long as I'm in the sun, there's light, it's bright, it's warm. But as soon as that sun moves a little bit and it starts getting off me, what do I notice? It gets darker, I get colder. If I want to stay in the sun, S-U-N, I need to keep myself in the sun. As the sun moves, I need to move. I remember when we were down in Mexico, we were down there for a couple weeks and we didn't have access to a washer and a dryer. And there were seven of us. It's a lot of laundry. So you'd wash it by hand, and then you'd go put it outside in the sun. Sun moves. So what do you do a few times throughout the day? You go out and you move the clothes to stay in the sun. Spiritually, do you find yourself getting a little darker? Do you find yourself getting a little cooler? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Stay in the sun. S-O-N. Sometimes that's an active decision we have to make. So we have build, we have pray, that we have keep. And look at the last one here. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. Look. Look for his coming. Look for his return. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. There is a crown for those that love the return of Jesus. My twins right now are at this age, they're a little over three, that any time I come home and they haven't seen me for a while, I may have just been in a different room. I come in the room and they yell, you come back. And they do this for, you come back. Every day, the dog, you came back. There's just this excitement 
And I know that that's going to change. And I just wonder, spiritually speaking, how many of us are no longer looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life? There's a song that I remember from the newsboys when I first got saved. It's probably now 25, 30 years old. It was talking about the return of Jesus. And there's just a simple line and it says, when you come back again, could you bring me something from the fridge? Just treating this concept of Jesus returning as, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. That's cool. Well, what would happen if we would truly look, look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life and get the crown? You know what I want to do? I want to, I want to finish this up, 22 through 25, because I really think that 24 and 25 is something. Have you ever heard me use the analogy of the flower? A flower is beautiful, but if you dissect a flower, it loses its beauty. And I think 24 and 25 is a flower, and it, I've already proven to you that I will spend six weeks going through multiple verses, I'm almost afraid that if I would take 24 and 25 and break that down, we'd lose the beauty of what that benediction is. So let's just quickly do this. Um, 22, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating them in the garment defiled by the flesh. I just want to share two quick points on that. Maybe I'm going to go too fast and lose the point of it. Anytime you go out and share the gospel, you have to let the Holy Spirit lead. Some people need that distinction of compassion. Some people need to be told there is a hell and you're going there. I got saved because Jim Crager taught on hell. And I said, I don't want to go there. The mercy, compassion thing when it got my attention. The ultimate love of Jesus when it got my attention. The reality of hell got my attention. And so therefore, I don't have a problem mentioning that. And I don't have a problem telling people that because the reality is others save with fear. Pulling them out of the fire. If you would die today, do you know where you're going type thing? Why should God let you into heaven? It's that idea. So there is that distinction, and please let the Holy Spirit. If the only tool you have in your toolbox is hell, 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 then you need to go back to verse 22 with compassion. If the only tool you have in your toolbox is, oh, God loves you, loves you, loves you, yeah, you need to get another tool called hell. It's just knowing when to pull out the right tool for the right person, for the right job, and that's why you're in prayer, and that's why you're stopping as you're talking to this person, you realize which one does this person need. And like I said, if time would allow, I could give you examples of just talking to someone and realizing, yeah, I, I'm, I need to go the compassion route on this one, and I need to make sure they understand, yes, they're a sinner, yes, they are saved by grace and love. Others, when it's like, you know what, I need to just come right and tell you then, listen, you're at war with God, and you ain't going to win this one. Hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. That I can truly look at someone and say, I love you. But I absolutely abhor the choices you're making in life. The Bible says that I'm supposed to respect all people, but I do not have to respect their decisions. I am not of any opinion whatsoever that I need to respect people's opinions or their faiths. I need to respect them as a person because God told me that. Not to be an idiot to them, not to be a jerk to them. But if their belief system is wrong, and their belief system is going to take them to eternity of hell. I need to hate the garment defiled by the flesh. I can't go up to false teachers and false doctrine and say, you know what, let's just find some common ground. Oh, you call God that name? That's really neat, because I call God this name. Oh, okay, you think Jesus was the first created being? Okay, well, I think he was the Savior that created everything, but at least we're both saying the name of Jesus. I can't do that. I have to hate the garment defiled by the flesh. And, and, and I know that sounds hard, and the verse comes to mind of, I think of Ephesians 4.15 off the top of my head, where it's supposed to, where it says, speak the truth in love. 
that in love I can speak truth and say I do not have to accept your belief system because your belief system is wrong and let me tell you why, but I will do it lovingly. But I need to speak the truth. So once again, I'm not picking on anybody, but if you're the type of person that has a hard time telling somebody they're wrong, please look at 23.7 saying, you have to hate the garment defiled by the flesh. That's why I can look at somebody and say, listen, I love you. But what you're doing right now is so completely, utterly unbiblical. I cannot put up with that. I have to hate that garment. I have to. Which takes us to 24 and 25. Which is just a beautiful, beautiful benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceedingly joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. I'm not going to do too much on it, but look at 24. Aren't you glad that God keeps you from stumbling? Can you imagine if it was my job to keep me from stumbling? Paul says, I sin every day. I stumble every day. Can you imagine if it was my job to keep my wife from stumbling? It was my job to keep my kids from stumbling. It was my job to keep you from stumbling. 24, he is able to keep me from stumbling. He presents me faultless. Can you imagine if Christianity was, James, I saved you once. Now keep yourself clean. Think back to your little kids, parents. You get them ready to go. We used to do this with the boys all the time. We'd get them ready. They were clean. It's like, don't go outside. Don't eat anything. Why? Because I need to present you faultless. And if you go eat or go outside, you will stumble and you will not be faultless. Aren't you glad that God says, I will keep you from stumbling. I will present you faultless. Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Wow, that's verse... That verse is, to me, very self-explanatory, but yet it's so deep at the same time. I'm before his presence, his glory, and there's joy. And look at 25. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. What a great, great ending there. And like I said, it'd be something to go back and pick that apart. But sometimes you just got to let that lie on its beauty on its own. And that's one of those that really just is beautiful. Any final questions, comments? About anything here before we close up, Richard. Yeah, and and I think that's important because if it goes back to twenty, but you beloved, he all of a sudden he says, "You guys, you just keep your eyes on the prize." We, we've talked enough about the false teachers. Yep, they're going to be judged. God will take care of it. But you, you keep your eyes on the prize, and you just go out there and witness for Christ. Just, just I'm just asking you. Keep a little mental track this week. How much energy are you putting into being angry, upset, and frustrated about everything that's going on in this world versus saying, no, Lord, I want to take that energy and build myself up on the most holy faith. Make that conscious decision. Anybody else have anything here before I close up? All right. So that finishes our book of Jude. Book of Jude. Hey, a couple quick announcements here. You are daily breads. Uh, little ones we do September, October, November large print back there start in October feel free to grab that prayer sheets also we had uh, Bless Our School Sunday this coming Sunday excuse me last Sunday sheets are back there parents great grandparents great grab these I just pick it up look at it look at the verses and whatever kid comes to mind pray that verse it's a wonderful thing I encourage you to do that as well we're looking at a baptism October 11th or October 18th 
the weather is nice, we'll do it outside under the shelter house. If the weather is not nice, we will do it in the fellowship hall. If you're thinking, well, it's not going to be warm enough for a baptism, they will heat the water if you're interested in getting baptized. But if you love Jesus, even if it's cold. Um, but that's going to be going on October 11th or 18th. If you have not spoken to me about getting baptized and that's something that interests you, please talk to me about that. So that way we can get you signed up next week, something new. Hey, thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. You guys are a blessing. Would you stand with me as we finish in prayer? I think a great prayer to end with is this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless.